From Wisconsin Public Radio, this is Newsmakers. I'm Ezra Wall in our lacrosse studio. We are getting outside today. In spite of the cold, we're going to talk about some activities that we can do outdoors. Later in the program, we'll talk to ornithologist and wildlife biologist Jeanette Kelly. Uh, Jeanette is the Citizen Science Center Director with the Beaver Creek Reserve in Fall Creek. We're going to talk about outdoor bird watching. You're really going to enjoy that conversation. Uh, but first, we're going to the Snowflake Ski Club in Westby. I know you've probably heard of it, but maybe you didn't know. This is the 100th year of the Snowflake Ski, Glo- Ski Club. And once again, their annual ski jumping tournament is coming up. It's going to be on next Friday and Saturday, February 3rd and 4th. And all the information you'll ever want about it is at snowflakeskiclub.com. Well, in anticipation of that upcoming ski jump and in celebration of the 100th year of the Snowflake Ski Club, I went to Westby and found out all about it. It's a windy night in Westby as volunteers with the Snowflake Ski Club groom the hills below the 5 and 10 meter ski jumps. The temperature is mild by Wisconsin winter standards and about a dozen elementary school age kids are getting ready for practice. I can't get them! It's too slippery! For a hundred years, nestled in the steep hills of the Driftless area, this club has taught generations of athletes. Members have also hosted ski jumpers from around the world for its annual tournament. Bob Bland has been part of the festivities since his childhood in the 1950s. One of my first memories was we used to, we set up a place where we could flash the style points on the side of the hill with some big cardboard numbers and because a lot of the crowd would like to keep score in there. Program, so. Bland said his father, Dr. P.T. Bland, first got involved in Snowflake Ski Club as a matter of public health. My dad was the town doctor, and he got uh, involved in the ski club. He moved to town in 1953, and every February, around the ski tournament time, there'd be an influx of uh, young men coming into the clinic with broken bones or <laughs> scrapes and so he uh, noticed an upt- uptick in injuries around that time and he uh, kind of got involved just to see what was happening and why these people were getting hurt and he ended up being a uh, engineer of ski jumps his main focus was to make them safer getting ready to host international competitors in those earlier days required a different kind of effort than it does now in the era of modern grooming equipment and manufactured snow. In those days, you just hoped, hoped it snowed enough natural snow so <laughs> you could get it done. They'd haul truckloads of snow up uh, to the top and then run it through a, a farm equipment auger type of thing, and it would blow snow through these chutes down to the hill, and we'd get below the snow with um, sheets of plywood <laughs> to keep that snow from going all the way down the hill. I remember once a rock came down and I was behind my plywood, but it actually cracked the plywood and <laughs> so it stopped the rock. But Just across County P from the ski jumps is Snowflake's clubhouse. That's where I met Disco Dan Ellefson, who didn't have much to say about the origins of that nickname. Uh, somebody just thought it sounded good, I think, so they just dreamed it up because I never cared for that music. So it's not from that. 
Ellefson says the modern snowmaking technique is a lot better. We make all our snow. It's two or three weeks if it's good and nothing breaks down, we can make enough snow then. And the man-made snow is a lot better to use because it holds up, say on a day like this where we're getting close to 40 degrees and the sun is shining. It stays hard a lot better, which is a lot better for jumping. And he would know. Disco Dan jumped competitively for some 30 years, starting on the small hills first, then moving up to the bigger ones. I was 20, I think, the first time I skied the big hill. Most guys get there before that. The holy smokes am I high. It was fun. I got to the bottom of the hill and I thought I made it. And I fell backwards. And I got up and I said, I can't wait to get back up there. He says he still remembers the weightless feeling flying off the end of the jump. You're probably in the air three to four seconds. But when you're flying through the air and just watching the ground go by underneath you, it, it feels like a long time. Time goes pretty slow. It's really enjoyable. Back across the county road at the smaller jumps, coaches are working with kids from five to about 10 years old. Butt lower. So I want to see that all the way down until you're ready to jump. So you want me that low? I want, I want you low. And if you think you're low, go lower. Janine Morley's whole household is a snowflake family. Her husband is a volunteer, and her oldest daughter, Mackenzie, she's this year's snowflake queen. Tonight, Janine's here to watch and help coach her nine-year-old daughter, Maddie. Definitely balance their in-run, you know, the proper form. That type of thing is super important, you know, to, you know, the, the form more so, you know, they're, they really want that form. Not so much, you know, like these littles, how far they can jump, but just being able to get down and be in that in-run when they go down to, to land and... Yeah, so you can really see a difference in the kids when they are, have the correct form, you know. Snowflake's most prominent local export was Lyle Swenson, who captained the American ski jumping team in the 1964 Olympics in Innsbruck, Austria. Morley says renewed energy around the club's youth program has folks hoping for an equally bright future, especially among the club's teen competitors. You could tell there's definitely some that are really excelling here, yeah. We've got some that are just amazing to watch already this year. And they've been traveling this year already. Um, Eau Claire last weekend, Minneapolis, I believe they're going to be at this weekend with a quite a few of these guys too. Coach Derek Lundy is a third generation snowflake ski jumper. He's coaching his kids, the fourth generation of Lundy's, to jump in Westby. Yeah, it's super fun. It's exciting and it certainly makes a proud dad to see him come down that jump and and uh, I, I see a lot of similarities um, from just the style of the kids, how they jump, and then the, the style of what I would do when I was a kid. So it, it's kind of neat to see that. It's, it's real similar that I see myself in the, in the kids. But as much as he enjoys coaching, he still remembers what it was like soaring off the jumps in his competitive days. Especially when you're on the bigger jumps, it's a very surreal feeling. Um, you know, you're basically flying, and there's there's not a lot of things that in this world that can make you feel like you're flying in the air. Um, so it's, it's the rush of that, and you know, when, once you do it once, you, it's, it's pretty addicting. Volunteers like Coach Derek Lundy are hoping this year's Snowflake Ski Jump Tournament helps propel the club into its next 100 years. 
Now in its 100th year, the Snowflake Ski Club in Westby. Uh, you can find out more about the upcoming tournament that's coming up next Friday and Saturday, February 3rd and 4th at snowflakeskiclub.com. Coming up on Newsmakers, we're talking to wildlife biologist and ornithologist Jeanette Kelly from the Beaver Creek Reserve. We're going to talk about winter bird watching. That conversation is coming up right here on Newsmakers from Wisconsin Public Radio. It's Newsmakers on Wisconsin Public Radio. I'm Ezra Wall, talking today about winter bird watching with ornithologist Jeanette Kelly, the Citizen Science Center Director at the Beaver Creek Reserve in Fall Creek. She spoke with WPR's Shireen Seward, who hosts Route 51 out of Wausau, and they had a really great conversation that I thought you'd like to hear all about winter bird watching. Enjoy. It, it becomes very basic where it's all animals, including us, we need our food, water, and shelter. And for a lot of the birds we see here, especially in the summertime, those birds are insectivores and they are looking for insects. So all those bird species that predominantly feed on insects, they have nothing to eat here this mm -hmm. time of year in Wisconsin. So a large part of our population does migrate south. And that can also be water. They maybe need water, you know, food, water, shelter, other things that we need to survive. And so water with our food freezing water throughout the state, that's another thing that pushes a lot of species further south. Now, the birds that stick around this area, like you mentioned the cardinal, and I love the fact that you brought you brought up that fact that there are a lot of bird species that stick around through the wintertime because so often people think about birding in the spring and the summer, but there is fantastic birding throughout the winter months. And for those birds that stick around, they are well adapted to be here. They have a food source. Most of them are seed eaters and they can find shelter and they have enough food sources to gather water or they know where to find those little niches of open water that remain throughout the state. You mentioned robins. Uh, we had uh, an email from Tammy who uh, said that she was wondering if you'd seen the robins in Eau Claire this past week. She said that she she saw flocks of mm. uh, of several dozen. Are they robins? Is that what she's seeing? Well, it could be. I I am not exactly sure. I have not seen them, but. I it's it's definitely very possible. We know at Beaver Creek Reserve, just outside of Eau Claire, we have an area where no matter what time of winter, you can always find robins there. It's a little tucked away part of the reserve where there's a spring. So there's always open water. There's plenty of berry bushes for the birds to eat off of. So it is, I would not be surprised if she has seen a flock of American robins. The other thing possibility that it could be is I have heard people talking a lot about cedar waxwings, mm. and they are a bird similar in size, a, li a little bit smaller than the American robin, but they also do congregate in large flocks. And I know people have been seeing flocks of cedar waxwings. So it could be either of those two species. Mm, okay. In addition to those, um, what other birds are we likely to see this time of year in, in Wisconsin? Sure. Some of the ones that stick around and may seem commonplace, but still really neat birds and sometimes 
don't maybe get the intention that they need. But a lot of the great birds you can see in winter, the northern cardinal, which you had mentioned earlier, the black-capped chickadee. We are lucky in Wisconsin to have two species of nuthatches. We have both the white-breasted and red-breasted nuthatch, and they are full of such fun little antics and so great to watch in the trees and at your feeders. We have woodpeckers. Lots of species of woodpeckers can be found here in Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. and they are a great one to learn to watch and observe and to identify. Uh, I I saw a pileated woodpecker in our yard several times. Yeah, and they're so bizarre looking, aren't they? They are. They are huge. They seem like they shouldn't exist. And sometimes I think people are frightened when they see them fly up to their window feeders or even fly across the road. And I will say I have lived throughout the country and the area here in the Chippewa Valley where I currently reside, I have never lived anywhere with such a high population of pileated woodpeckers. I literally see them every day, which I think is is pretty amazing. They are they're really cool looking, but they are they look like dinosaurs. To yes, me. yes. We at Beaver Creek Reserve we have a bird banding program that has been going on for over twenty years, and occasionally we do capture a pileated woodpecker that we then do some measurements on and do health checks on and band them and release them. But I'll tell you, when we get a pileated woodpecker, it is a handful. It requires a couple oh. people to hold on. To it, and everyone at the Nature Center knows we have it because it's very loud. Oh, yeah, I bet. I bet. Are there, this is a, uh, I'm just going to ask, are, are there birds that specifically just come here? for the winter that we only see during the winter? Or is that not a thing? Yeah, absolutely. Just like we're talking when we mentioned migration at the beginning of the show, some birds are seeking warmer temperatures, less snowfall, open water. And you have to remember when you think about North America, we are not at the farthest northern tip. So there is northern part of this country, uh, of this uh, land north of us. So those northern species, those boreal species, those tundra species, they come down to Wisconsin because we are their Florida. So we see birds like snowy owls. We can sometimes see great gray owls, rough-legged hawks, which are my favorite of the hawk species. And also some of the great feeder birds are pine siskins, red poles, there was a big push of evening grosbeaks this year. A lot of people have been seeing evening grosbeaks. In the summertime, we have the rose-breasted grosbeaks mm-hmm. that grace our backyards. But in the winter months, sometimes we are lucky enough to see evening grosbeaks. Now, I will say a lot of those winter visitors are dependent upon the weather and the extremes either up north or here. When there are more extreme conditions up north, a shortage of food, we see big pushes of these species come down here. And we, I know the snowy owls in the state have been lower than past years. And some of those songbird species that you may see at your feet are like the pine siskins, the red poles. I haven't seen any and I haven't heard anyone talking about them. Now, that doesn't mean that they're popu- anything's wrong with their population. It just means that they don't need to come down here this winter or for mm-hmm. whatever reason they're choosing not to come down. Another common one I should mention species is the junco. A lot of backyards right now are full of juncos feeding off the ground. How do birds adapt to the colder weather? When, when it starts getting colder out, what happens to them that makes them you know, able to withstand these crazy temperatures? Sure, that's a great question. 
One of the maybe the idea that would pop into people's heads right away would be their feathers. And their feathers are a tremendous and extremely important resource for them. Let's think about a chickadee. So a small bird could easily fit in your hand, weighs about five nickels. And if you think about the feathers that are covering their body, we know feathers are warm because we spend a lot of money on down comforters and down coats, down sleeping bags. So we know the importance of feathers and the warmth that feathers can provide. But that little chickadee, I would estimate, has about 5,000 feathers covering its body. 5,000 feathers. And those feathers help insulate it they can move those indiv- those feathers individually and capture air under those feathers to help insulate it. It helps also to keep them dry, so dry from the snow or the freezing rain that we've had recently. So it helps those feathers keep them dry and keep them insulated from the warmth. So their feathers are a huge adaptation. Uh, another adaptation they have is the the way their blood flows. Birds have a different type of blood flow system to help warm their blood and keep their blood from being so cool at their extremities. So in their legs and their feet, they have a different warming system for their bloods than blood than we do. And as many people probably notice, when we have extreme temperatures or big storms coming, backyard bird feeders are often very, very busy. Mm-hmm. And that's because those birds are filling up on food and often food with high fat, high protein that will help keep them warm. How do they know? How do they know that something's coming? Oh, isn't that a great question? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and I, I often wonder that myself. And you know, I, I don't know. And maybe there is someone out there that does know. And that's just something that uh, my knowledge doesn't cover. But they... It's it's similar to your dogs. I mean, my dog knows when there's a thunderstorm coming sure. or when people talk about having injuries and their, their arthritis in their knee acts yes. up. But, you know, is the pressure change, uh, you know, things changing in the climate that they are able to sense and, and know? Uh, that makes sense. I can feel it in my bones. Right. Let's, exactly. Let's <laughs> well, how cold is too cold, though? Is there a point where you really worry about the survival of the birds when it, when it gets to a certain temperature or a certain uh, weather conditions? Yes. Now, there's probably the scientific answer for that and the more emotional answer to that. And I fondly remember my father when I was a kid, when it would be so cold out and my dad would say, I just want to open the doors to the house and let all the animals come in right now. (laughs) Let them all come in and warm up. Animals can survive at phenomenally cold temperatures and in very extreme weather. They may, to help survive those temperatures, may reduce their mobility. They may also kind of go into a um, what's called a toper, not really a hibernation, like we would think of a black bear going to sleep for many months, but a toper where their body really does slow down and their heart rate might slow down so that they don't need to have as much energy or work as hard to keep their body warm. And they can survive, very, like I said, very cold temperatures. Um, what is too cold? I, I don't really, I don't really know because I have been shocked sometimes when I think there's no way I would go outside right now and I see birds in the bird mm-hmm. bath. Mm-hmm. And people say, "Well, oh my gosh, what's wrong with those birds? Don't they know they're going to freeze to death?" But I truly believe animals are intelligent enough to know what is safe for them and what is not safe for them. Are there some species of birds that you, as a scientist, are more worried about than others when it comes to the the cold weather? 
The cold weather, the the birds I would worry about the most are birds that have gotten off track, so to speak, in terms of they, for whatever reason, missed migration, they got blown off migration, they got confused on where they are. There was on the Christmas bird count this year, there was two interesting birds picked up in Wisconsin. One was a black and white warbler. Now, you might not know what a black and white warbler is, but warblers, most people, if you're interested in bird, know that we think of summertime, you know, hot July when we think of warblers. And there was a warbler found in Racine County in December, mid-December. That bird I would worry about because it is not you know, maybe doesn't have quite the insulation capacity, cannot find the food source it normally would be looking for, which would be those high-protein insects. Birds like that, we actually had a chipping sparrow a few years ago at Beaver Creek Reserve that we caught. It was the end of December. It was one of the latest records ever known of a chipping sparrow. And that bird I was very worried about. We actually saw it a few times at our feeders. We captured it a couple times and released it right away. But um, I would say, and this is me anthropomorphizing, that bird looked cold mm-hmm. to me. <laughs> and that, that <laughs> understood, we, we, understood. we felt like we should keep it and uh, keep it warm. But obviously, that's not something we would ever do. But right. it, it seemed cold to me. You're listening to Jeanette Kelly, who is helping us explore the wild bird population during Wisconsin's icy winter months. Jeanette, I'm curious about some advice for beginning birders, uh, people who are just kind of getting into this. Um, what do you recommend? Are there? websites, apps, um, anything that are that you'd say is a really good resource for somebody who's who's trying to get into it? It's a great question, Shereen, especially because people tend to find birding intimidating. And they shouldn't. Birding is something anyone can do. It does not have to be your background. You do not you didn't don't have to have taken ornithology five oh one in school. Mm-hmm. Anyone can become a birder and you can do it uh easily, you can make it more difficult. It it it's very, very flexible. The and yes, there are tons of resources out there. There's a lot of websites. The Cornell Lab of Ornithology has a great website all about birds. There's some fantastic apps through Audubon, the Merlin app through Cornell. There's a lot of different apps out there that people love and utilize. And I would encourage people, especially if they're seeking out websites or apps, try several different ones because in my mind, resources for identification are extremely individual. You could have 12 birders in here and we would all hold up our favorite field guide and they could all be different. So I think it's really important for everyone to research the different options out there and See what works best for you. And there are a lot. My my husband loves the Smart Bird ID app, for example. Sure. He's got that up all the time. Yes. But, but I know he tried a whole bunch before he settled on what yeah. was, was really right for yeah. him. Yeah. And even if you don't like it initially, try it again. The Merlin app, I actually dismissed originally. And then I took a trip to Florida where there was a lot of shorebirds that I might not know. And I used it not necessarily to identify what I would see, but as a check and balance for myself that I think this is what I'm looking at. Now, let me pull it up on the Merlin app for the photo ID or the sound ID, and that really helped me. But I still say with all the the technology we have out there to help us with identification, I think the best way to learn your birds is sit at your kitchen table with your cup of coffee and look out your backyard at a bird feeder. Mm-hmm. 
and even do that with someone who knows birds. Go birding with someone. That and to start small, I think that's one of the biggest things is there's over 400 species of birds you can find here in Wisconsin. You don't need to learn all 400. Right. Start with five. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a doable goal. Yeah pick, yeah. pick five and pick five that you are likely to see. Pick the chickadee. Pick the nuthatch. Pick the cardinal. And some people might think, oh, well, I know those. But do you know the red-breasted from the white-breasted nuthatch? Do you know the goldfinch from the purple finch from the house finch? Pick those really common birds that you are likely to see a lot and nail them. Figure out how to identify them, what resources help you, become confident in those. And once you do that, that's going to help you because you're going to learn those skills for identifying what helped me know this is a downy woodpecker versus a hairy woodpecker. What are the key things that I'm looking at? That's really important in helping you learn to identify birds. So just sit down, pick five birds, learn them, And join with people, join with local birders, join with your local Audubon group or your local nature center like Beaver Creek Reserve. Do you have any secret spots you'll share with us? Good spots to spot birds in the winter? Where do you go? Um, Well, I last year went to for the first time and just booked another trip to go up to Zaxim Bog in Minnesota. And it's north of Duluth, and it is just a really cool place. I mean, bogs. Bogs Mm -hmm. are really cool to begin with. But to visit one in the winter where you're going to see a lot of birds that you just don't always get the opportunities to see. Evening grosbeaks, bohemian waxwings. I will brag a little bit. And last winter when I was up there with a friend, we were in our car. And out one window, we watched a snowy owl. Out the other window, we watched a great gray owl. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that for a birder. Mm -hmm. Well, if we would have had a northern hawk owl on the hood, that would have really made it. But uh, it's 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 a really neat place to go see some birds that you don't always get to see, and especially those winter birds. The other birds that are really, I think, amazing that you can find up there are black billed magpies. Magpies are really more of a western species. Yellow billed magpies are only found in a small area in California. Uh, black billed more throughout the west, but the fact that you can see a black bird, a black billed magpie, a few hours from here, I think is worth the trip. What about food sources? I mean, can food sources give us some kind of clues on where to go to spot the spot the birds that we're looking for? If we're wandering the trails, should we be looking for specific you know berries and bushes? Sure. Yeah, a lot of the birds like cedar waxwings, which we mentioned, or the bohemian waxwing, which I know people have been seeing this winter, also coming into the area. Those are fruit eating birds. So, like the woman who emailed in talking about the flock of birds. If you see a flock of birds. Or if you're looking for bohemian or cedar waxwings or bohemian waxwings, go where there's some old crabapple trees or uh, high bush cranberry bushes or things like that. And they're going to be eating those dried berries. If you're looking for the evening grosbeak or the crossbills, go where there's a lot of conifers. Another great place to look would be if you know there's open water or a little stream trickling. A lot of birds might be seeking out that area. 
Well, winter birding also requires a little extra planning. Obviously, it's cold out there. So and layering, uh, if you want to have fun, what do you recommend for clothing and gear? Is there any anything specific that people should really make sure that they have? Well, for clothing, especially when it comes to birding, and if you are at a place like a nature reserve, a wildlife area that you're doing a lot of driving. So I have learned you want to be in something that is warm in the car, but perfect for when you're out of the car. So you don't have to keep putting layers on back and forth. Because I'm going to tell you, when you pull up and you think and you suddenly see that black billed magpie or that that red cross bill, you don't want to take the time to put on your hat and mittens and coat. You want to be able to jump out of that car. Mm -hmm. So I find fingerless gloves or, or mittens that you can pull back the top of very good for being able to use your binoculars, which then, of course, your binoculars. Mm -hmm. Keep your binoculars handy at all all times. A little bit ago, you were talking about water and how important it is for birds to find water. It can be very hard for them uh, to find that fresh water in the winter. Are heated bird baths a good idea? Absolutely. Heated bird baths are excellent as long as you are keeping them clean and keeping them full. But it is amazing on those chilly days when you will see birds flocking to heated bird baths. If they cannot find a water resource, they will really seek out those areas. Birds do get a lot of water from their food that they consume, but they also, most species do also need to have some water available to them. And you will find that they will not only drink in it, but they will bathe in it. So heated bird baths are a great resource to keep in the winter. And you maybe get a heated bird bath, or if you have a little uh, wildlife pond or creek in your backyard, sometimes people will put a heater, like similar to what uh, someone might use for a cattle trough or something to keep a heater in the, the pond to keep it open. So definitely an important and a good resource to have, but it's important to keep it warm, or I'm sorry, to keep it clean and to keep it filled. How, how filled should it be? Is there a rule of thumb? Is there such a thing as having too much water in the, in the birdbath? You know, Shireen, I, I am not really sure about that. I've heard different theories on, well, if it's too deep, the birds will drown. Mm -hmm. Again, I I don't dismiss animals' intelligence at all. I mean, a bird's not going to walk in the middle of a 100 feet deep lake and drown. So I don't necessarily think it would in the bird bath. But some people do, which I think this is a good idea, put a rock or something in the middle of their bird bath so that birds, what I think that does is actually provide more surface area for birds to land on. So they don't just have the rim of the bird bath, but they also can land in the middle of the bird bath. So I do think that that is a good idea. That's Jeanette Kelly. She's the Citizen Science Center Director at the Beaver Creek Reserve in Fall Creek. Speaking with WPR's Shireen Seward. Thanks a lot to Shireen for helping us out today. And we will have more of our conversation with Jeanette Kelly coming up. If you'd like to check out part of our conversation today that you might have missed, or maybe you missed the front of the show where we had that story about the Snowflake Ski Club in Westby, you can check out all of our previous programs on the website, wpr.org newsmakers. That's wpr.org newsmakers. This is Newsmakers from Wisconsin Public Radio.
from Wisconsin Public Radio. It's Newsmakers. I'm Ezra Wall. We're talking to Jeanette Kelly today from the Beaver Creek Reserve in Fall Creek. Jeanette is an ornithologist and wildlife biologist there. She spoke with WPR's Shireen Seward from Route 51. What are some things that communities are doing to encourage bird survival? We hear about bird-friendly design an awful lot, but what does that mean exactly? Yeah, that bird-friendly design, thinking about the needs of birds. And and I just want to point out that, remember, even for a program like this, when you are looking specifically at one group of animals, remember that's not just that group of animals that helps. We have a whole huge interconnected set of wildlife and insects and plants out there. So helping one species quite often ends up helping a lot of other species. And so bird-friendly, you want to be thinking about the the way buildings are constructed, the windows you have, the way the windows reflect. You want to think about lights out, doing lights out at night. That's been a big push to not have lights in buildings, on skyscrapers. You want to think about the food, the food that you're providing through plantings. There are a lot of non-native plants out there right now that we are putting into our yards. Think about more what are native plants that could be providing shelter in the winter, that could be providing food in the winter. It's getting rid of a lot of the concrete or the mowed grass. One of my big soapboxes has been becoming to not mow so much grass. Grass is literally an ecological desert. It is just a dead zone. Now, don't get me wrong. Put me on a blanket in the grass on a nice, warm summer day, and I'll read my book all day laying in that grass. Mm -hmm. But when you think about pollinators, wildlife, birds, it provides nothing. It doesn't even have insects for the birds to eat. So thinking more about not having so much, I don't want to say open space, because you can still have a lot of open space, but scattered throughout that open space, planting native plants, planting shrubs, trees, bushes that are much friendlier to our native wildlife. Are there things we should stop doing that you think, just please stop doing that? <laughs> I, I, I'm probably going to get uh, certain companies or people mad at me now, but I would uh, – you're setting me up here. Um, I, would, I would stop mowing so much. And when I say that, it doesn't mean you can't have your yard. Just take a two-foot strip along your yard and stop mowing that. Put some trees in there. Put some bushes in there. We've done that on both sides of our yard. Uh, so stop doing so much mowing. Or in May, no mow May has become a common thing many people have probably heard of. Mm-hmm. Stop mowing in May so those plants can get, become established and those pollinators can get what they need. No, uh, Not mowing so much is a big one. And also chemical use. I am amazed at the amount of chemicals that are available to anybody nowadays that we can just readily put in our yards mm-hmm. where we are maybe our newborns or our dogs are laying in the grass and then sticking their hands, their feet, whatever in their mouths, tracking into our house, uh, the seeping into our groundwater, especially if you are in a well system. I live in the country. I have a well. It makes me very concerned when I see all the people that are spraying their yard for insects. Mm-hmm. Um, that that all seeps into your groundwater and could get into your well systems. And spraying trees, uh, gardens, I it's not uncommon. I'm sure people have heard me say before when people come to me and say, you know, my bluebirds used to be all over my fruit trees and now they're not there anymore. Why? Well, 
you're spraying them with chemicals. And so it's killing all the insects. And that's what the bluebirds want to eat. So I think chemical usage and cutting back on the amount of green grass and non-native plants is a huge step you can do in your own backyard. I always wondered about the the impact that that spraying might have on birds, and mm-hmm. I think that's interesting. We we've talked a lot about what you know the things we can do, but but what do you say to people say who ask why is it even important? Why should communities care about creating a bird friendly environment? Why why is this top of mind? Well, I think that comes down to then what is it that you want out of life? What is it that you feel makes a good quality life for you, your children, your grandchildren? It is when I think of life, I think there is a need for cities and towns and buildings and all of that. But I also know that wildlife and nature is a huge part of my life. And they do know through a lot of studies that nature and wildlife are very important for all people, even if you don't realize the importance it is for you or for your family. It is hugely significant. And I I reference this movie a lot. There was a children's movie some years back called WALL-E about the the little robot. And I thought that movie was phenomenal when there's scenes of these humans all living in this spaceship, essentially, and they don't communicate with each other. They only communicate through technology. They don't have plants. They don't have animals. And then they find this one little plant and people are blown away by it and they fall in love with it. So it's it's extremely important nature to all of us, even if we don't notice the direct effect it has on us regularly. Um it does impact all of us. Here's an observation from a listener. Uh, Kate, uh, Kathy sent an email in saying that evening gross peaks have returned to the Northwoods in large numbers in, in the 30s uh, at and around feeders near uh, uh, and up to 100 near Sailor Lake. Also, a red-bellied woodpecker, a regular visitor, pileated woodpeckers, as we talked about earlier, goldfinch, purplefinch. More chickadees than in the last few years. Um, all regular visitors uh, and using sunflower seeds and suet. We're going to talk about food in just a little bit. But um, why is it that these birds are are here now? I mean, is it has there been a change in weather? I know you talked earlier about how some you know, some birds come some years and some they some don't. But is this unusual? Yeah, a lot of those birds that they are would be common to, you know, easily found here in Wisconsin during the winter. The kind of the anomaly is the evening grosbeak. Like I said, we can have them throughout the northern part of the state. But there has been reports of large pushes of grosbeaks this year, of evening grosbeaks. And I know, especially in the northern part of the state, people have had huge numbers, hundreds at their feeder, and huge, huge flocks of them. I had really hoped we would see them down here. And I know early in the winter, there was a few reports around the Altoona area of people having evening gross beaks. I know up in Holcomb, up in Bloomer. I've talked to a few people who've had them at their feeders. I have not seen one yet this winter. (laughs) So we are not seeing them here in the masses in the Chippewa Valley and probably not in southern Wisconsin. But there are large numbers up in the northern part. And, you know, I have to admit, I I have not read fully of why they see such a big push of them this year. But I... I would assume, I guess, a lot of it does just go back to those basic needs, food, water, shelter. And it could have also been an extremely productive year. So there's a lot more of them out there. And it could be that there was 
in their normal habitat, their normal range, there was an issue that has really pushed them to different locations. Some bird species also tend to be what we refer to as nomadic and or eruptive. And that's a little bit different than when we think of migration. Eruptive means that there's a huge year of them that year and they just push out all over the place. And we'll see that with the snowy owls. Sometimes we have huge eruptive years with snowy owls or pine siskins. And some species are what we refer to as nomadics. Like if we talk about crossbills, they are a species that really don't seem to follow a lot of patterns. They just kind of go where they want to go and do what they want to do. And that's really more of a nomadic species. Um, so exactly, I, I don't know for sure why the gross beaks are in such high numbers this year, but they are around, so look for them. Let's talk a little bit about food. How difficult is it for birds to find enough food on their own to survive in the winter? So that is a question that I am often asked. And I think people might get mad at me sometimes when I look at them and I say, you know, they don't actually need you to survive. (laughs) (laughs) Because backyard bird feeding for many years now has been the number one outdoor activity for people. And we spend a tremendous amount of money on bird seed to Mm -hmm. feed birds. So feeding is really important. And I would never say don't do it because I really believe in that connection between nature and humans. And if you don't have something to make that connection, then you're never going to care. So I think that any way that you connect to nature that is safe for both of you, I think is extremely important. So birds can survive without backyard bird feeding. Is backyard bird feeding helpful? Absolutely. And there has actually been a fair number of studies that have shown that bird survivability does increase, especially in really cold temperatures like we had talked about earlier. They've done a fair number of studies on chickadees and looked at chickadees that had access to feeders in really extreme temperatures, how that did increase their survivability. Hmm. Chickadees will still survive without your backyard feed, but it does help birds through the winter. It does also help them with breeding and productivity in the summer. But the winter months, it is certainly helpful. And we see when we fill those feeders after they've been empty for a while, how quickly birds flock to them. And uh, besides, feeding birds is fun, too. I mean... (laughs) It is so fun. And you never know what you're going to get. Exactly. Some of the challenges that birds uh, struggle with, of course, the avian flu, other life-threatening bacteria. This is particularly in the summer months, of course. But And when this happens, we've been cautioned not to put out our feeders. Mm-hmm. Is that much of an issue in the winter? Concern about diseases and spreading, spreading of disease is still really important in the wintertime. And it is very important to keep your feeders clean all throughout the year. Now, I'm going to be honest and profess to everyone that I don't like cleaning bird feeders. I don't like doing it. I probably don't do it as much as I should, but I am aware of how important it is. And it is definitely something you should do. And that's all times of year, especially maybe, you know, maybe more so in the winter when birds are congregating because they're looking for that easy food source. So things to think about when feeding birds with bird feeders is purchasing feeders that are going to maybe not allow for feces to gather. So a tube feeder where a bird is perched on it but isn't fully sitting on it versus a platform feeder where a bird can be completely on top of that feeder and could be excreting right directly into the food. 
a hopper feeder that stores a lot of food but has a, a roof over it to keep your feeder dry, your food dry, to help prevent things from molding and rotting. Those are very important things when thinking about keeping birds healthy. And again, just cleaning up your feeders, cleaning your bird baths, and then cleaning up underneath your feeders is also extremely important. And to touch base back on the food and, and the feeding of the birds, in the winter, great foods to feed birds. Black oil sunflower seed is every bird's most favorite type of seed. So if you're going to feed one thing, buy, buy excuse me, black oil sunflower seed. Another great food source in the wintertime, again, thinking about high-fat, high-protein, peanuts. I know peanuts are pricey, but peanuts, either in the shell or out of the shell. Out of the shell, you're going to have smaller birds that are able to access them, like tufted titmice and the nuthatches and chickadees. Peanuts in the shell, the blue jays love them. So those are a great food source. And suet, again, high-fat, high-protein, providing a lot of energy for the birds. And if you want to bring other things in like millet, millet, white millet, not red millet, but white millet is important in the wintertime for a lot of the ground feeding birds like the juncos, all those juncos that visit us in the wintertime, they are seeking out a lot of that millet. So that's kind of in a nutshell, the probably the most important seeds as seeds and foods that you could offer in the wintertime. What about other things that you might have in your house that, that you could put out, like fruits? Uh, is, is that something that you could put out for birds or is that not a good idea? Not so much necessary in the wintertime. In the summertime, you certainly could. But the things you want to think about, especially if it comes to, say, dried cranberries or uh, things like that, they have a lot of sugar in them. Also, just thinking along that same lines of what's in your house, peanuts or sunflower seeds. If you have peanuts or sunflower seeds that you're consuming, they are likely cooked in oil and have a lot of salt in them. Mm-hmm. So those are things that are unnecessary for birds and potentially could be harmful. So if you do have things in your own house that you are feeding birds, just make sure it's a it's a whole food. So it's not a food that has been processed or has things added to it. But in the summertime, more of those fruit-eating birds are a possibility and there are certain things you could could put out for them. Although <laughs> often you might end up attracting butterflies more so than birds, but you know what? That's okay. Mm-hmm. What about corn? I've heard kind of conflicting opinions about that. Yeah, a lot of a lot of birds will eat corn. Blue jays, blue jays like it. If you are a, f- a fan of the corvids, the the crows, ravens, things like that, they will eat corn also. And some people don't like corn just because it does also attract the squirrels. Uh, squirrels have to eat too, but uh, I understand people's frustration over feeding the squirrels sometimes. Sure, you know, listening to you, you're so enthusiastic about this, and it's just infectious. How did you get started in this in this career? What drew you to it? Oh yeah, well, I actually I, I grew up with parents that we lived out in the country, lived out in the woods, and my parents both had backgrounds in biology, and they certainly instilled the love of nature and the outdoors in my my siblings and I, my two brothers, but. I grew up knowing I loved animals and wanted to work with animals and had every intention in working with mammals. I have an older brother who was a wildlife biologist. He was working with bears and elk and deer, and that's what I assumed I would do. And the very first job I had, I ended up working at Patuxent Wildlife Research Center in Maryland, and someone stuck an American kestrel in my hand, which is a small raptor. It's a small falcon, and it stuck its talons in me and bit me with its curved beak, and I fell in love. (laughs) (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.
<laughs> that's and all it took. That's all it took. And and what made me fall in love with it is the fact that this was an animal that was small enough to fit in my hands, but it had the ability to inflict so much pain on me and still had so much it had such an influence. It had so much control over me when really uh, normally you would think, well, I'm so much bigger than this. I could I could eliminate this if I wanted to. But that small bird had so much power over me that it just made me fall in love. And that is what then set me down a path of birds and specifically raptors. My, my heart is truly with raptors. When the caller mentioned the rough-legged hawk, oh, that makes my heart flutter. They're so beautiful. They're so gorgeous. But really, it was that experience out in Maryland that just made me realize how fascinating birds are and just something I wanted to spend my life working with. So I, I dropped the mammals. I dropped all of that and jumped into the world of birds. We've got about a minute and a half left in our time together, and I I wanted to give you an opportunity to share information about any events that you know about that might be coming up for people who want to get involved. Yes. And... You know, get involved no matter where you live, no matter where you're listening from, there is a birder near you or there is a birding group near you. So just because I'm in the Chippewa Valley outside of Eau Claire does not mean you need to be here to participate in birds. Anywhere you are, seek out those local areas. And a few things to think about uh, coming up throughout the state, at least, would be the Christmas bird, or I'm sorry, not the Christmas bird count, the backyard, the great backyard bird count comes up in February. The Midwest crane count will happen in April. Those are two big things to look for. And also, also in April, Beaver Creek Reserve and Gaylord Nelson Audubon Society and actually Landmark Conservancy out of Menominee will be supporting us this year too. We run a two and a half day bird school. It's a fantastic opportunity for new birders. It can Maybe you've never even held a pair of binoculars. This class is for you. It's a great opportunity to learn about birds, learn about identification, learn about ecology and natural history and hang out with some people that love talking about birds. Sounds wonderful. Jeanette, this has been absolutely a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Shireen. That's Jeanette Kelly of the Beaver Creek Reserve speaking with WPR's Shireen Seward. Thanks a lot to Shireen and the whole crew on Route 51, uh, which is a program like Newsmakers, except it airs out of our Wausau Bureau. So thank you very much to that crew uh, for helping us out today. Uh, Shireen Seward is the host of Route 51. You've got uh, producers Rick Ryer and Joy Ratchkramer, uh, as well with Kate Spranger, who also helps us out here on Newsmakers, and we appreciate all of them. If you ever want to get in touch with this show, uh, you can email us anytime. It's newsmakers at wpr.org. That's newsmakers at wpr.org. And there are a couple of chances each week to catch the show. It's on Friday morning at 10 on the Ideas Network 90.3. Then we repeat Friday night at 7 on NPR News and Music 88.9. Until next week, I'm Ezra Wall. Please join us again on Newsmakers here from Wisconsin Public Radio.